episode, Parker Heritine and Cody Warda continue the interview with Dr. Jordan Westling. We continue to discuss God's reasons for creating and turn our attention to an account of God's creating out of love. Additionally, we discuss God's effective and suffering love and whether there are good reasons to think that God has an effective and suffering love and what this implies about the divine attribute of impassibility. We hope you enjoy. So up until now, you've discussed God's motivation to create through glorificationism. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about the other motivation or the second view that you present, which is creation from love? Yeah, so it's sort of intimated. There, there, are, more, there are more than just two views, but in the book, I, I describe two major views and argue from one over the other. Now, the second view is the idea that God creates from love. It's a view that I call amorism. The defender of amorism maintains that God creates and guides the world in general and humans in particular out of love for them, the sort of weird and wonderful beings that they are. So in this view, God might hold Kylie before his mind and create so that she exists, so that she flourishes, and so that she is ultimately united to him. So this reason for creating in turn greatly informs how God engages with Kylie providentially, right? God will seek her flourishing in union with her, for example. So the Amorist says that God creates the world in general, and humans in particular, out of love, and then guides that world providentially, motivated principally by love. Okay. So it seems like the motivation for creation in the first place plays into the motivation of how God treats us and our lives. So, so too, one could say for glorificationism, that if God did originally create us for his own glory, that will be the way that he can use to, to treat us uh, for his own glory. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, what are the, what are the latter views strengths? What is amorism's strength that you take and why should one prefer it over glorificationism? Yeah. For me, the fundamental reason is that amorism makes sense of the pattern of action we see in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Right? Amorism just fits well with this God who gives to another, invites the other into the divine life, and, and so on. Right? And so I argue here in the, in the chapter, here are two major views, glorificationism, amorism. Glorificationism has various problems. Amorism doesn't share these problems, and it just seems to fit well with this loving God we see primarily revealed in Christ. That's the sort of Cliff Notes version. Okay. It seems that should God be motivated to love because of glorification, his own glorification, that would in some sense be prior to the act of creation. So in the same sense, when we're talking about looking at the life of Christ and seeing how Christ loves individuals, that's after the act of creation. Uh, Is it possible then to have a slight critique there and say, well, Sure, but even in the life of Christ, he may be loving creation because doing so glorifies who God is. Okay, yeah. So the um, I understand your question would be something like this. Can't the uh, glorificationist assimilate the sort of gospel narrative and be like, yes, but ultimately God does these, all these things for his glory, right? Yes, they, they could say that, and they do often say that, right? So Jonathan Edwards is a big glorificationist that I have in mind here. He would definitely say that. Yeah, so then it's going to turn on, can the glorificationist genuinely make sense of, say, the self-giving love of Christ in, say, the crucifixion, 
And I argue no, because we have, for the reasons we just discussed, sort of a window into why Christ did what he did. And it seems to be genuinely other focused. So if the glorificationists and say, oh, I can assimilate that, right? The whole thing, just the whole gospel narrative, including the crucifixion, just fits right into our framework. Then I try to show that, no, the framework, at least as it's commonly put forth, contradicts the divine motives for the crucifixion as we find it in the New Testament. It's the thought. It's not even a, yes, there's a sort of best explanation argument at that, at that stage. But really, the idea is, no, glorificationism just contradicts the motives we see in Christ. And then as far as, well, then why amorism? At that point, I'm appealing to something like the kind of best explanation, right? Um, it could be that God has motives that, of which we're totally unaware, but the whole rhythm, the whole outpouring of God's salvation plan, our best indicator that we have is that it's through and through by love. This represents the inner Trinitarian life. It's through and through coded by love. So it's very plausible to think that God creates and guides the world fundamentally motivated by love. That's extremely helpful. Thank you. So switching gears a little bit, we've talked about God's motivation to create. Now we're talking about God's effective love. Yeah. You argue that God's love is just this effective love. What do you mean by this? And what's a good reason to believe it? Yeah. um, So effective love is the type of love where one is effectively open and responsive to those loved. It can be understood to have both a sunny as well as a shadowy side. So the sunny side is that this love enables one to connect with another in a rich way that generates all manner of joy and delight. So now you can think of, I don't know, like a healthy aged marriage where the two parties involved just know each other well and delight in one another in a myriad of ways. The shadowy side of effective love love is that it plausibly renders one susceptible to suffering. So to say that God has an effective love for the creature is to say that God takes joy and other positive emotions in creatures but also that God may suffer in response to creatures. For example, suffer in a sort of compassionate response to the unfair plight of creatures. Okay, so why hold that God has effective love? Well, I would argue that effective love seems to be very valuable, right? So think again of that, you know, healthy aged married couple who really know and delight in one another. It just seems like if they felt nothing and didn't take joy in one another, it seems like it would diminish the quality of their love. Even if we wouldn't blame them, this isn't a blame game. There could be a chemical imbalance or something like that, but there seems to be something less valuable about that form of love. And it's the way that scripture depicts God's love, right? Now, classically, of course, people didn't take that language um, super literally. Fair enough. But it seems to be, effective love seems to be quite valuable, and it seems to be the way Scripture depicts God's love. Now, against the view rests the weight of the Christian tradition. But it might be, right, might, that biblical fidelity plus the apparent value of effective love is enough to overcome the weight of tradition on this issue. Now, I understand that many will have their doubts about that, Fair enough, but something along those lines is what I argue in um, chapter four of Love Divine. 
Okay. So the sunny side is that affective love seems to make one involved in the life of the beloved. The dark side seems to be that the one can suffer on behalf, such as uh, having an empathy when their beloved suffers. But rather than say that this is totally dark, you're saying, well, in fact, this seems to be very valuable when, for example, the older married couple have compassion for each other when the other one suffers. Yeah. Uh, this actually seems to be the correct response. This seems to be very valuable, in fact. Yeah. Okay. So, so you maintain the following. God expresses the highest possible form of love and thus the most valuable form of love. And moreover, effective suffering love is so highly valuable that it's worthwhile to predicate of God. Mm -hmm. And this seems intuitively plausible. How can, if suffering is bad, plausibly, how can suffering love be overall valuable if it involves something that seems intrinsically bad? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So a few things. I would add just one thing to what you said, right? Um so if we decide to predicate a suffering love to God, it shouldn't be just that we find suffering love valuable, in my view. It should be that we find this love valuable and that we are convinced that Scripture predicates, predicates this type of love to God. And furthermore, that we don't have sufficiently strong evidence to the contrary. So at least three conditions there. Valuable, Scripture speaks this way, that we don't have sufficiently weighty, weighty counter evidence or various defeaters. Now, obviously, this is a judgment call that will need to be somewhat complex, right? Now, and so why we might think suffering love is valuable, one idea is that the one who appropriately suffers in love gives more of herself to the values of the world than she otherwise would. She allows the world to impact her in both head and heart, so to speak, right? So suppose my son Theodore is murdered. God forbid, that would be absolutely terrible. Right? There would be something deficient about my love for Theodore if I wasn't, at least for a time, grieved over his death. Realistically, the grief would stick with you to some degree your entire life. Right. But that aside, it seems that some emotional response, there's some apt emotional response of grief that should take place. Right. If I only judge that the murder was bad but didn't feel it. Or if I just judged that the murder was bad and performed the relevant actions, like prepared the funeral, you know, spoke to my wife and tried to be a source of comfort to her, you know, whatever actions were there, I, I performed them. But I didn't also feel badly or feel that this thing was just terrible. It seems to be something deficient with my love, right? Now, perhaps God's love is similar to human love in this respect, right? Now, maybe this isn't the sort of thing that we could figure out a priori, but it does seem to be the way scripture talks about God's love, right? So the thought is combined the, the apparent value of this love with the way scripture depicts God's love, plus the making sure we don't have sufficient counter evidence. And it seems like those things together could potentially give us sufficient reason to think yeah, God is like us in this respect. He has an effect of love that contains not just joy, but also one apt uh, kind of suffering love. Okay, that's very helpful. Digging into that a little bit. So it seems that this can plausibly meet the three conditions of being in accord with scripture, lack of counter evidence, being intuitively plausible. Could you tell us a little bit more about how 
when a good thing involves a bad thing, when suffering love involves suffering, the fact that there is something intrinsically bad doesn't defeat that it is a good thing. Yeah, okay, good. So there's this idea called organic unities, or organic wholes, that was made famous by um, the philosopher G.E. Moore. So the idea is that, the idea behind organic unities or organic wholes, the idea is that the intrinsic value of parts of a thing may contribute more or less than their intrinsic value to the value of the whole. In other words, there's some sort of mismatch between the value of the parts and the value of the whole. So recently I read an example from this young philosopher that I mentioned earlier, Daniel Rubio. So I didn't expect to talk about him so much, but anyway, so he gave this kind of humorous example. So suppose that vanilla ice cream is intrinsically valuable and suppose that pickle juice is intrinsically valuable. Mixing them together seems to be a worse concoction than they are independently, right? Perhaps a better example, because it doesn't get into things like taste or how we respond to various flavors, has to do with paintings. It's not rare for an ugly portion of a painting to factor into making something overall beautiful, right? So think of the hellish depictions of Michelangelo's fresco, The Last Judgment. Here you have hellish depictions, anguished faces and other things, right? But it factors into a whole that is beautiful. So this thing that is itself we'll say ugly or unsettling itself can play a role in making something on the whole good and beautiful, right? So the value of the whole isn't a mere sum of its parts. So some people have thought that suffering love is similar, right? Suffering by itself is intrinsically bad. It's often held up as the, the sort of paradigm example of that, which is intrinsically bad. Yet it can factor into an organic unity such that, for example, suffering in commiserative response to another's unfair plight, right, that's one massive sort of organic unity, where the, the whole is quite good. And in fact, it is better than it otherwise would be. So that response, a sort of commiserative response, absent the compassionate suffering, arguably, would not be as rich and as good as it would be absent the suffering. Anyways, that's the claim. So in some, you seem to argue the following, if God must exhibit the highest form of intrinsically valuable love, and this love is suffering love, then God must exhibit suffering love. And the second point, which is that this love is suffering love, you, you pull from ideal human love and scripture and lack of other sufficient evidence for anything else. Yeah. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, something like that seems right, yeah. So I guess a potential objection to this would be, is this position seems to require that God's love is lacking without suffering. So assuming that God is not suffering in himself for some reason, it follows that God's perfect love needs a suffering creation and that God's love is lacking prior to creation unless he creates eternally. So overall, God's love would seem to require there to be, there to be at least some suffering what, what would you make to this objection? Uh, this obviously gets into issues with inter-Trinitarian love and what that means and how that might be different. Yeah, yeah good. Okay, yeah. So I was going to, I almost made this qualification earlier. Yeah. So I'm not particularly moved by this kind of objection, right? So the claim I want to make, and I do make in the book, is that effective love is intrinsically and greatly valuable. And a sort of fallout of this effective love is that it renders one who has it susceptible to suffering 
should the relevant app circumstances emerge, right? So the important bit is the effective bit. And sometimes that means suffering, but if no one's suffering, you, you don't need to suffer, right? You can think about it this way. If God, in God's own life, there's just like grieved all the time, uh, <laughs> it'd be like, over what? You are beholding the most amazing being that could possibly be, each of you, right? This is awesome. Stop, right? There's no reason to suffer here, right? So effective love is a sort of emotional response. It's effective response to beings. But it sounds suffering. There's no reason to suffer, right? So then on that view, the persons can enjoy the full value of effective love without suffering. All the joy and delight they get from one another. So now what I do take to be a very strong objection to the conclusion that God suffers is that it does require one to revise the traditional Christian conception of God, right? Now, I'm a traditionalist, so I find this objection impossible to ignore, and it haunts me, right? So I'm still not entirely sure what to make of it, to be honest, but there, there you have it. There's my confession. Okay, so the, the traditionalist's objection is that if God has effective love, on the one hand, he is uh, passable, not impassable, uh, but it would also seem to follow that if God is affected, that would seem to require some type of temporal sequence of events. And so God wouldn't be atemporal. It would also seem to follow he's not immutable, yeah. perhaps. Um, so you lose at least three of the classical uh, divine attributes of immutability, impassibility, and atemporeality. Yeah. Is that a, atemporeality? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that works, I suppose. Yeah, that's the worry, right? I mean, there are ways of getting around of some of these concerns. I mean, Brian Leftow has written on the idea that God could be both passable and atemporal. Ryan Mullins has done, uh, R.T. Mullins has done something similar. I think even Catherine Rogers has done that as well. But you're right, right? It's true that strictly speaking, you can get around some of these things and preserve some of these attributes. But all you have to do is add additional theses that are very plausible, and then you get God's temporal, which the te- divine temporality doesn't bother me that badly for reasons we don't need to get into now. But impassibility itself, boom, giving up that, that's significant in the tradition, right? Now, they often meant different things by impassibility, and I would try to seize on that in the early church. But very quickly, there seems to be some uniform understanding of impassibility where it means minimally God doesn't suffer, right? It probably means something greater, that God's not the subject of external causes, Okay, so that's a big deal. And then also um, immutability. Some people think that is a big deal. So it does start revising your concept of God. And I I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I'm trying to figure all that stuff out. Out of curiosity, do you think that there is a significant impact on then what the incarnation means as far as at, at least on the cross and probably for the extent of the incarnation to some degree, it seems like God's intertrinitarian love changes in that it becomes effective if there is no suffering up until at perhaps the moment of the cross or the first moment of the incarnation or something along yeah. those lines, then from that moment onwards, it seems like effective love has been introduced into the Trinity. Yeah. Does that, is that a plus? Is that a worry? Or do you think that observation doesn't hold for some reason? Yeah. So what I would say is the effective love is always there. What changes is suffering is now introduced, right, through the incarnation or or maybe even through creation itself, right? So creation, then things evolve, and then after that, things start suffering, and God maybe feels something for that. 
Yeah. So what I want to say is it's the, it's the kind of compassion that's introduced. God in God's own life doesn't have compassion. But that doesn't worry me terribly, right? Because even the classical theist is going to, have to say something like that, right? Where there are certain kinds of actions and certain kinds of attitudes, although they might analyze the attitudes slightly differently or maybe significantly differently, that God takes on in virtue of creation. They're not going to be intrinsic in the same way that I want to say effective love is intrinsic, but they're going to have to say things do change in light of creation. I mean, he bears a property or something like being the creator, for example, <laughs> prior to creating. There's one more thing. I don't want to get too far in, although I'm happy to talk about this further. There is also a distinction I think is helpful. I'm not 100% certain it applies here, but when it comes to adding things to sort of the divine, there are additions that are intensive and extensive. Let's see, make sure I got the distinction right. If I, if I have it right, someone can correct me online if I get this wrong. But um, an extensive sort of increase just means the number of things slightly changes. So you can think of God loving within the Trinity and then creates Adam and Eve, and now God loves God's self and Adam and Eve. So now the number of beings love, say, increases. But the, the increase here is just extensive. It doesn't increase the quality and purity of God's love. It's just, you know, the number, the range of things loved by God increases, right? Whereas an intensive increase says that um, the purity, strength, and quality of some feature of God increases. And I want to deny that there are any intensive increases in God, but there might be extensive increases in God. But those don't threaten divine perfection because the quality, purity, and goodness of the of the kind of you know attribute or whatever at issue is not you know increased or changed. Okay, so the degree of intensity or the number of individuals whom he loves mm-hmm. increases, so that doesn't indicate a change in the kind of activity or the quality that he already. Exists. Yeah, maybe better than love would be something like God sustaining three creatures in existence, and now he's sustaining ten creatures in existence. Well, it's like mm-hmm. yeah, there's an increase there. But it's not anything that threatens the divine perfection. It's just the scope is changing, not the quality and purity of it. So I want to say something like that is true of all. Any changes in God has to be a extensive increase only, never an intensive decrease. Thanks again for joining us on the Lagos Institute podcast based at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, and of course, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can find out more about the Lagos Institute by visiting our website, found in the description.